Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, today we got Housing Starts data that uh, was kind of mixed, frankly. We saw an increase in the number of Housing Starts, uh, to Housing Starts the fastest pace in about a decade, but the number of applications for permits declined. Joining us now to talk about the state of the U.S. housing market is Aaron Terrazas. He is a Zillow senior, a senior economist, a Zillow senior economist. Um, thank you so much for being here, Aaron. So what was your take on this sort of mixed data? You're right. It, it was a mixed report, but I think there was good news in that we are seeing single family starts steadily rebound. They're, they're nowhere near what we would expect at this point in the business cycle. Uh, multifamily starts have actually been a, a bright spot. Um, uh, those apartments, five plus unit buildings, um, they dropped a little bit in 2017, but have been up over the past year, um, unexpectedly still strong. What accounts for that strength, up seven and a half percent? That's right. You know, I, I think there's a couple of factors driving that strength. Um, first, as rent affordability really began to deteriorate two or three years ago, uh, cities, particularly high price, high price cities, began to invest in easing the regulatory process. Um, and now, two, three years later, we're, we're starting to see the fruit of that uh, kind of regulatory easing. Really? Although I thought that the uh, big gains were really in the Midwest in some cities uh, where perhaps that wasn't as much of an issue. You're right. So, so the Midwest has seen the, the most recent month to month gains. But if you're looking over the past year, kind of the West uh, and the Northeast ha have still seen strong multifamily starts. Have you seen any effects uh, because of the rise in lumber prices, tariffs on imported lumber from Canada, for example? You're right. In, in the single-family space, the, the single-family construction in particular, uh, tariffs and, and, and kind of recent trade actions have increased costs for builders. I heard uh, an estimate of about $9,000 a home. Right. So I, that's kind of in line. My estimate is ten dollars to $15,000 for your median new home um, that adds. Uh, but it's important to remember, it's not just softwood. Softwood is the biggest particular component that's been tariffed, but things like uh, cedar shingles um, have also kind of received uh, tariffs. Um, things like aluminum and, and, and steel are about 3% of the, the, the typical cost of your single family home, not to mention consumer appliances like washing machines and dishwashers. So, you know, just to pick up on, on that, that important point, the costs of the actual materials has been increasing, but so have the costs of the labor because there's been a real shortage there. How much has that contributed to an increase in uh, home prices as well? You're right. Number two of the, the rising costs, the headwinds that builders are facing, uh, residential construction uh, wages are up 5% over the past year compared to a little over 2% for overall wages. Um, we're seeing double the pace of wage growth in in kind of for those residential construction workers. That's as clear a sign of any that, that builders are facing labor shortages. So at what point will these increased costs materially slow housing starts? I'm not sure they're going to they're slow housing starts. What they are doing is they're pushing up um, the price point that, that builders are targeting. So, you know, we are seeing that that median price point of, of new construction 
rise. Um, and, um, and, you know, and, and kind of a little bit of it is what we're not seeing. As I said before, at this point in the business cycle, we should be seeing more housing starts. Okay, this is what confuses me. The biggest dearth of housing right now is sort of smaller starter homes. It's the affordable homes that people want to buy. If you have builders basically having a disincentive to go out and buy and, and create these homes, you know, is there enough of a market at the high end, first of all, to absorb what the builders want to build? And can they afford to build what is actually actually needed. I think builders builders have that that same concern that's one of the reasons they're they're remaining cautious. If you look at um, new home sales, about a third of new homes are sold before they're even started. That's up from historically about 25%. That means builders are offloading this risk that they're carrying um, rather than wait for a couple months of appreciation while construction finishes. I think kind of builders today are do have that scars of what happened a decade ago and are being conservative, um, not wanting to overbuild. Um, they know there's demand at that more affordable price point. It, the, the math doesn't work out for them there. New home sales, just to get more color on that topic, what's your outlook? So our outlook, uh, new home sales data will be released next week. Um, our, our forecast suggests, uh, I think, a small decline. You know, there is some month-to-month volatility in that series. I think the more important point that I'm looking at um, next in next week's data is that that median price point. Last month uh, in the provisional April data, we saw a big drop in that median price point. I think that's going to be revised upward. One thing that really struck me, there was a story on the Bloomberg Today looking at a Harvard study that found that U.S. homes are a lot cheaper than they look. And they looked at an inflation uh, adjusted basis. The monthly payments that people are making now on their homes are actually below what they would be in 1987. This is all thanks to low interest rates. So, uh, you know, how much does that factor into people's uh, equations right now? Lock in the low interest rates while they are where they are, and that will actually mean a cheaper home now, even if prices are pretty high. Nationwide, home affordability looks great right now. You know, it's it's in, in the low 20s, your, your, your typical um, mortgage to income ratio. So much of that is driven by interest rates. As interest rates rise, that's going to kind of push that number upward. But, you know, if you look at that historical average share of income that goes to a mortgage, that's that's assuming a, an average historical mortgage rate of, of 8%. I'm not sure that mortgage rates are going to get up to 8% even at their highest point this cycle. Just to go back to this idea of rent affordability, uh, looking at specific cities where it is affordable to rent, Pittsburgh, right, mm-hmm. number one, St. Louis, number two, Oklahoma City, uh, followed by Raleigh, Birmingham, and so on. What do you see in terms of any trends for big cities? Yeah, so so rent affordability is almost the opposite of the mortgage affordability story. It is at historic highs, um, particularly in in those high priced cities. In a place like San Francisco, LA, people are spending kind of almost fifty percent of of their income on rent. That's at the median for a bottom um, a bottom third uh, renter, kind of renting a bottom third house. It's it's eighty ninety percent, um, which is just just not realistic. But you're right, kind of there are kind of those more affordable cities. Um, where there has been more supply and, you know, more importantly, kind of less demand in that rental market because it is still affordable to buy in places like like Oklahoma City. Um, you know, people in those markets tend to buy as soon as they can. Thanks very much for being with us. Uh, Aaron Tarasis, he is the uh, senior economist for Zillow, talking about uh, new housing starts and the housing market. China 
is planning to act, quote, forcefully on Trump's $200 billion tariff threat. Uh, President Trump's uh, administration is drawing up a list of perhaps new tariffs to impose on China to retaliate for the retaliation to the retaliation to the retaliation. Here we are in this cycle and here to explain to us how to strip out what we should be paying attention to from the noise. Patrick Chauvinik, he Chauvinik, he is chief strategist of Silver uh, Silvercrest Asset Management. Patrick, you know, when you talk to a lot of traders, they say there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of uh, threats, but the actual economic impact so far is fairly minimal. At what point should people take up uh, their, their pens and say, wait a second, something here is vastly different? So there is a steady march from words to actions. And we are starting to see more and more of these words translate into actions. Um, it's incremental. You're right. Um, but, uh, you know, I look at it, there are, there are two sets of effects. There's the short-term effects um, that may affect uh, this market cycle or how stocks perform in the near future. And that is uh, the potential impact of, of uh, inflationary shock from more expensive inputs, like from steel. Uh, and then also the retaliatory impacts, uh, measures that are meant to target specific companies or specific industries in the United States and hit their earnings. But there's also a longer term impact, which is the erosion of and the undermining of these trade rules, which, however imperfect that they may be, have created a lot of opportunity, not just for American companies, but from com for companies around the world. And, you know, there's something going on right now at WTO where the United States is refusing to allow new judges to take up their roles uh, at WTO. And very soon we're going to get down to where there's only three judges which is the minimum required um, to have any kind of ruling. And then we'll go to two, and they won't be able to rule on anything. So you have countries like Canada or the, Euro the European Union who say, well, we don't like what the U.S. is doing. We're going to take it to WTO. If they can't take it to WTO because the U.S. is blocking that, they're going to be adopting more, more unilateral actions. And this, what we're seeing here is a situation where the temperature just keeps rising and rising and rising and the actual economic impacts start to accumulate. Patrick, uh, let's say you get a call from a client and they say, look, you know, you taught at a university in Beijing, Xinhua uh, University. Uh, also, uh, you've worked in private equity. You worked for uh, John Boehner. So you've got a political uh, acumen there. And um, you also uh, have uh, worked in public policy. Where do we put our money today? How can we take advantage of people following headlines going in one direction? Maybe that's a head fake. Let's assume that that's how we see it. Where do you put your money if you bet that the demographics of emerging markets, particularly in Asia, can be your friend? Okay, well, you, you raise a bigger question about yeah. sort of globally, you know, where growth is going to come from. But let me let me answer the immediate question that, that people are asking me about, about this, all this kind of trade uh, headlines. And the thing that I've been saying is, look, there are, there are, we're already seeing in markets um, a disparity in performance between uh, the smaller caps and more technology focused firms, which are not exposed to uh, these sort of trade disputes and the larger caps. 
many people ask me, they say, when is when are these trade issues going to start affecting the markets? I'd say they've affected the markets throughout the year. We've had excellent economic numbers. Um, we had a great earnings season in the first quarter. We had 6% in, in May. We had uh, uh, retail sales were up 6% year on year. And, and in the face of all this, though, we've got flat markets, particularly in large caps. Yeah, so you're making the argument of small caps versus large caps, and the small caps have outperformed by more than twice uh, the large caps. The question is, and a lot of people will argue, uh, this is a messy, a messy analogy, and that you know small caps will eventually feel the brunt of any economic uh, downdraft that the uh, large caps are reflecting. Yes. So so there are the broader concerns that, you know, if we have inflationary pressure rising, if we have retaliation that doesn't just target a few companies that actually has a broader economic impact, everyone's going to feel that. But for the moment, right, there is that disparity between we can't ignore the good economic news. I mean, I'm as alarmed at the headlines and the potential impact that they might have as anyone else. But I also look at numbers that the market on a bad day like this, tends to ignore, which is that you know, retail sales up six percent year on year, expectations of three to anywhere from three to five percent GDP growth in the second quarter, and you can't ignore that either. So, where are you going to pick up? Where are you going to maximize your exposure to that good news and minimize your exposure to those potential risks? So, you're buying small caps on a day like today. Uh, I would. I mean, we manage whole <laughs> portfolios. Yeah. So, what I would say is, you want to. Have that in mind when you're thinking about your asset allocation. All right. Uh, I do want to get a sense of your take on China's strategy here, given your intimate knowledge with the Chinese government and how they approach things. It seems as if there is a very deliberate targeting of areas that voted for President Trump. This is the, the sort of farm belt uh, and sort of the steel country. This is where you're seeing the tariffs put first. Does this matter to markets? In other words, this definitely has sort of political overtones with respect to what the midterm elections might look like if China is effective. Does it? Do you care from a market perspective? Sure, because uh, you know it's it's not a stock market; it's a market of stocks, and so you want to uh, be aware that these retaliatory measures are going to be targeted at specific companies and specific industries. And it's not just China, by the way. Uh, it is also the EU, Canada, Mexico. They're all uh, crafting their retaliatory strategies to try to maximize the political leverage. So, for instance, Mexico is putting a big tariff uh, on, on uh, cheese exports uh, from the United States, about $400 million worth. So if you're an investor, you have to you know, go below this. We're not passive investors. We're active investors. So we're not looking at the index. We're not just looking at how the market overall is doing. We want to go and look at specific companies, specific industries, and what their exposure is to these kinds of risks. Give you 20 seconds. If you could get on a plane and go anywhere to go investigate a potential investment in an emerging economy, where would it be? I go everywhere all the time. I just got back I know from that. Ukraine. That's why I'm asking you. Where would you um, go? You get to go one Eastern place. Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe. Okay. It's most most interesting. I mean, that doesn't mean that I'm bullish on it. I, I just understand. mean it's. I, I'm most curious about it. All right. Well done. Thanks very much for being with us, uh, Patrick uh, Chovanic. He is managing director, chief strategist of Silvercrest Asset Management. You can follow him on Twitter at pr Chovanic. That's C H O. V-A-N-E-C.
right now, I am very excited that we have David Carrington with us. He is Jefferson County Commissioner, uh, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. David, I want to start uh, with a little trip down memory lane. Jefferson County is known in the bond world for its 2011 bankruptcy, one of the biggest in the municipal bond uh, market's history in the U.S. I'm wondering today, as we see some of the struggles with Illinois and Connecticut, would you recommend that they go down the same path that Jefferson County ultimately had to pursue? Well, it's surely a last resort. It's not something that you want to do flippantly. Um, I continue to say that after a year of negotiations, we had three gallons of water in a one-gallon bucket, and it didn't look like we were going to get a larger bucket, and we couldn't reduce the water. So we had to do it. Um, the financial situation was a one that was apparently unsolvable. With that said, uh, before a municipality entertains Chapter 9 bankruptcy, they have to first seriously try to negotiate their way out. They need to recognize it's very costly. In our case, it was a million dollars a month. We were projecting 36 to 48 months. It actually, we were able to exit in 25 months. You have to be sure that the uh, elected officials have the political will to make the decisions that have to be made in order to restructure um, the organization. And so um, I would not recommend a, a community do this in, unless they have an elected uh, a group of commissioners or counselors or uh, senators that are willing to uh, take the political heat. I was told uh, uh, that if I... Uh, file for Chapter 9 bankruptcy, my political career would be toast. And my answer to that was I didn't run to get reelected. I ran to fix the problem. So you almost have to have a mindset that this is uh, uh, something that you don't want to do, but you have to do in order to make the community sustainable going forward. And just to quickly sort of recap, in, in Jefferson County, Alabama, this goes back to like 1996, there was a consent decree having to do with the city's sewer system. That's correct. They needed to finance the revamp of the sewer system. They issued bonds. Then it got really bad, and there were lawsuits, and several people went to jail, and it it, it was none of which you are associated with. So that's I just that's true. That the day I walked in the office was... Uh, November the 10th of 2010, we had $3.2 billion of sewer debt in default. Uh, we had a sewer receiver appointed by the court, so it was going to double rates and then double them again. Our geodet was in default. Our audits were three years past due. We had an indigent care hospital losing 10 to $15 million a year, a county home losing 2 to $3 million a year. So uh, yeah. to say it was a mess is sort of an understatement. <laughs> and uh, yeah. then on our 22nd day in office, uh, a circuit court judge ruled that a tax that had been passed for the county's general fund was passed illegally by the state legislature, and we lost 25% of our revenue. So that wow. was our 22nd day. <laughs> and then on the, the last day of our first year in office, we filed what was at the time the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history. Right. Uh, a year or two later, Detroit rallied and surpassed us, and I've always been thankful for Detroit for doing that. I'm sure that... Uh... <laughs> Detroit says you're welcome. I, I want to switch gears a little bit because fast forward to today and Birmingham is actually attracting some businesses from places like New York and uh, New Jersey and uh, Connecticut and higher tax states. Um, to what degree have you seen these businesses come and, uh, you know, are you seeing it accelerate? Yes. Uh, in the last uh, 17 months, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 
nine, ten. I, well, there's been 11 companies uh, relocate into our community. And of course, the state's doing well too with the recent announcement of Toyota in the Huntsville area. We have Airbus in the last several years in Mobile. Uh, the Birmingham metro area actually, in a recent Forbes report, uh, has uh, pays the highest salaries in the United States. Well, that might shock people in New York, but when you combine our salary plus our cost of living, the dollar buys a lot more in Alabama. And so we're a low-tax state uh, with a high work ethic. And we have not uh, suffered, as we were suggested with the bankruptcy, we now have investment-grade ratings on our geodebt. Uh, and we were told that would never happen. We just refunded some debt in the last week, uh, last month at uh, 2.59%, saving the citizens $14 million. And we have redeployed that capital because we have a thousand fewer employees today than the day I walked in the office. So our expense structure is a lot lower. We've allocated $25 million a year for infrastructure so we can attract it. Uh, $18 million a year more for our public schools and $10 million a year uh, for economic development. So on top of uh, tax incentives, which most people use to recruit businesses, we also have a bundle of cash uh, that we can invest. Uh, we just uh, uh, opened a uh, truck manufacturer. It's a custom truck, uh, 750 jobs. And we needed about a million and a half dollars for some infrastructure work. So instead of borrowing the money, we now have a pool of assets that we can use to do that. Like I say, it's $10 million a year. It's a 25-year 25, 25 tax. So we've got a quarter of a billion dollars to recruit. And when we need a little bit more, be it for a road or, or a bridge, we can do that. Thank you very much for being with us. Looking forward to having sure. you uh, again on the program. Very interesting topics, and uh, thanks for your participation. David Carrington, Commissioner of Jefferson County, Alabama. Rebates and drug pricing. Here to tell us more about the industry is Michael Ray. He is the chief executive officer of RX Savings Solutions. They're based in Overland Park, Kansas, but he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Michael, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Explain to people that may not be familiar with the use of rebates when it comes to purchasing drugs and how it is changed. Yeah, so uh, rebates, uh, kind of think of them like uh a kickback uh, of sorts. You you pay a hundred dollars for the drug. Uh, the negotiated price might be eighty, uh, and there might be a twenty uh, twenty dollar rebate on top of it. So the the actual total cost in that scenario is is sixty dollars. It's kind of this, uh, uh, like I said, kickback of sorts that that goes back to a payer. Why does this exist? It's a great question. Uh, we live in a very complicated world when it comes to drug pricing. And the mechanics of how money moves uh, has gotten more complex over time. It, it originally, uh, you know, was a, a way to uh, give an additional discount uh, to the payer. But what's happened is it's been manipulated over time, and uh, profits have have gone up extraordinarily for certain uh, folks in the supply chain. Well, we certainly uh, one of the reasons why we've been paying closer and closer attention to this is because it's become a political issue. And then and, and the administration has said we're going to reduce drug prices. And in response, some of the shares of these big pharmaceutical companies declined. 
what is the latest with respect to the administration's policy to try to lower drug policy uh, prices? Yeah, I haven't seen uh, anything, you know, really interesting since the, uh, you know, the announcement by President Trump uh, probably four weeks or so ago. I did hear some, or excuse me, see some testimony from uh, Secretary Azar last week that uh, was focused on getting rid of rebates. And I think if there is a single uh, thing that can happen to lower drug prices, elimination of rebates is that thing. It, it is that important, and there is a tremendous amount of money changing hands. So just uh, how much would that hurt pharmaceutical companies? I mean, clearly, they're I'm, I'm assuming they're the ones that are pushing to keep these rebates, correct? Yeah, you know, I actually think that, that pharma could uh, come out better off if these rebates go away. I actually uh, am of the belief that they should be the ones proposing this. They should be uh, they should join together as a trade group and say, we're not going to participate because the uh, benefit, financial benefit that they received at the beginning uh, has been taken away. And, and I actually think that more competition would, would uh, yield a better result. Can you give us an update on what is going on with generic drug pricing? Because there was a list that the FDA put out that cited a variety of pharmaceutical companies saying that they were doing just about anything they could in order to avoid giving the information necessary to other companies to produce generic versions of their patented or their branded drugs. And yet it seems as though generic drug prices have been increasing, not decreasing. It's a, it's a tale of two, two uh, situations. You've got, <clears throat> you've got some pharma companies blocking, uh, like you said, on the, on the patent piece so that generics cannot be made, the first generic cannot be made. And then you've got other products in the market where you know, or 10 different manufacturers uh, make a specific generic drug. In those situations, you're seeing more and more, uh, you're seeing consumer prices go up, but generic drug maker stock prices go down. And there's this mysterious pot of money in the middle that no one seems to know where it goes. So, you know, low, lower lower stock prices, lower profits, but higher cost to the consumer. So I'm wondering, especially uh, given some of the focus on generic drug prices and how they've been going up, I'm wondering how this year's record pace of pharmaceutical mergers and acquisitions is going to play into drug pricing. I mean, is this going to end up uh, leading to more price increases because you're getting consolidation of specific uh, sectors of the industry? Or do you think that it might? Uh... Absolutely. Um, depending on the products, right? So um you know, if there's three or more competitors in a class, uh, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get an, a, a pr pretty efficient market. Uh, if you've got manufacturers uh, merging that, you know, have the two products on the market and they merge into be the single single company, uh, that's not going to bode well for payers and consumers in this country. Are there specific drugs that you're starting to see inch up in in price because of consolidations? Nothing yet, I, and I j just only because I haven't tracked it. You know, uh, in looking at what you're doing at RX uh, Saving Solutions, I'm wondering if you could just give us an example. Uh, I know, for example, you, you work with the state of Kansas. They've got their employee health benefits plan. Mm -hmm. What do you do for them, and what has been the result? What, why are they using you? Yeah, so, um, you know, to give you kind of an example, think of a, a, a patient with high blood pressure, and they go into the doctor, the doctor diagnoses it and says, we need to put you on this therapy. Um, Right now, they're choosing and they're kind of shooting in the dark. It's, you know, there's 40 choices and they pick one and they don't know if that's a high cost one or a low cost one. What we do is present all of the information to the consumer and the doctor to say, here are your 40 choices 
and here's every price that goes with it. That allows a consumeristic decision to be made and it allows a consumer to take hold, a consumer, a real efficient market to take hold and drive down costs while increasing outcomes because that patient actually has a drug they can afford and they can fill and they get healthier. So they brought us in to, to lower prices and that's what we've done for them. Thank you so much for joining us. Always illuminated to speak with you. Michael Ray, Chief Executive Officer of RX Savings Solutions, talking about the latest in uh, the effort to lower drug prices. Really interesting about the rebates and a really interesting point, Pim, uh, that Michael thinks that if you do get rid of the rebates, that actually end up, ends up being beneficial for the pharmaceutical companies. Well, maybe if you simplified things and didn't create all these tangled webs, you'd actually be able to see what you pay for a drug. And you wouldn't have to have a million intermediaries trying to figure it all out. Uh-oh. You mean that's common sense. Uh-oh. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.